0: So as Luke said, we are reading Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 29, and that can be found on page 1169 or behind us on the screen. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was so credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written... Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no human can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to the seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 433 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of the transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through the angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law has been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through, Christ, uh, sorry, through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in the custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, we are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized in Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, Nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and his heir according to the promise.
1: Uh, So don't you just hate it when someone asks you a rhetorical question? Isn't that just so irritating when someone (laughs) phrases a sentence like a question, but it's actually a statement? Maybe if you're quick quick-witted enough, you could have answered my own rhetorical questions with a rhetorical question of your own, such as, is the Pope Catholic or is this supposed to be a joke? Of course, the answer to all these rhetorical questions is yes. Yes, I do hate it when people ask rhetorical questions. Yes, it is so irritating. Yes, the Pope is Catholic. And yes, this is supposed to be a joke. And as we look at Galatians 3 today, Paul has plenty of rhetorical questions for the Galatians. He answered a total of eight questions in this chapter. But Paul isn't joking around. He's seriously concerned that the Galatians have deserted the gospel of grace in Christ and turned to a different gospel. You may recall from past weeks that Galatia was an Asia Minor. Therefore, the Galatians were Gentiles, that is, not Jews. And the false gospel being proclaimed at this time of the letter was that the Gentiles who put their faith in Jesus must then be circumcised and made to obey the law of Moses. And this has been alluded to the past couple of weeks as we've looked at chapters one and two. So when we now come to chapter three, Paul asks the Galatians a series of rhetorical questions, not because he wants to know their answers, but instead because he wants to lay out the facts and set the record straight as to what the true gospel message is. So whether you've been to church all your life, or this is your first time and you're not really sure what Christians believe, my goal today is to present you with a clear message regarding what Christians believe. And in order to do this, I've broken the passage into three main points, which you can find in your outline. Righteousness by faith alone, blessed by faith alone, cursed by the law, and I'll conclude with a big idea and summary. Next one. There we go. So let's discuss the first point, righteousness by faith alone. Righteousness by faith alone is a counter to two prominent arguments of the time, which are also prominent arguments of our time. Those two arguments are righteousness by faith and fill in the blank and righteousness by works. So let's once again look at the Bible to see how Paul constructs his argument that righteousness is by faith alone. So in this first part of chapter 3, In verses 1 to 5, Paul asks the Galatians a series of questions. But there is one question that is repeated. Look with me in verse 2. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? Now look at verse 5. So again, I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by works of the law or by believing what you heard? As I alluded to before, these are not real questions. They're rhetorical questions. Paul had already provided the answer to this very question earlier in this letter. Chapter 3, it's a continuation of the thoughts and arguments presented in chapter 2. So let's revisit the final verses of uh, chapter 2. So from verse 20 of chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Righteousness in the Bible is a key idea in understanding relationship with God. Being righteous implies being in a correct relationship with God. Ever since Adam and Eve disobey God in the Garden of Eden, humanity has been in a broken relationship with God. And the whole biblical narrative from that point on is about God's plan for restoring the relationship which humanity broke. And it is a key argument here in Galatians that righteousness, the restoration of that broken relationship, it cannot be gained through observance to the law, else Jesus would have died for no reason. Instead, righteousness is only found through faith in Jesus, who loves us and gave himself for us. Righteousness by faith alone. How do we know we aren't going to break that relationship with God and become unrighteous once again? Well, the answer to that question, it's also in the rhetorical questions. In both verse 2 and verse 5, It's clear that Paul believes that the Galatians have already received the Holy Spirit as a gift from God when they came to faith. In another one of Paul's letters, this time to the Ephesians, he helpfully speaks on the same topic. Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14 say, When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. We see here that righteousness and the gift of the Holy Spirit, they're an inseparable double blessing received through faith in the crucified Christ. How comforting to know that our relationship with God will never be broken again. Your righteousness is guaranteed by the deposit of the Holy Spirit received in you by faith when you believed in the name of Jesus. So the answer to that rhetorical question has become plain to see. The question of, did you receive the spirit, that is the deposit of your inheritance, by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? It's obvious. The Galatians received the spirit by believing in the good news of Jesus. And it will be extremely foolish of them to think otherwise. Now, does anyone like watching the TV show Bondi Rescue? Uh, it's on in my house from time to time. Uh, it can be It's amazing how the lifeguards, uh, they can sense that someone's in trouble often before that person realises that they're in trouble themselves. And then quick as a flash, they grab the jet ski or the longboard and they go out and they rescue the struggling swimmer and they bring them back to safety on the beach. And sometimes the TV crew, they interview that rescued swimmer Uh, once they're back on the beach. Now, how crazy would it be if after an amazing rescue by the lifeguards, the person claimed that they had swum back to the beach and rescued themselves? How absurd would that be? They would clearly be delusional. It was plain for all to see that no matter how hard they swam, how much they fought the waves, they were out of their depth and that we're in dire need of rescue. So Paul's lesson for the Galatians, and it applies equally to us today, is don't be delusional. Don't think that you rescued yourself. You didn't contribute to your own rescue one bit. You were completely out of your depth. It's through faith in Jesus alone, his life, his death, his resurrection, that your broken relationship with God has been repaired. But we still have trouble accepting this truth, don't we? After all, it does sound too good to be true. And we know from our experiences in this world that when something sounds too good to be true, it usually is. Surely, we have to do something, anything, right? Well, here's the catch. Are you, are you ready? There is no catch. Once again, thinking of Bondi Rescue the lifeguard doesn't swim out halfway and stop and wait for the struggling swimmer to come the other half and meet them there. Or the lifeguard doesn't pull up to the swimmer and say, well, rescue fee is $200 and payment must be made up front. Oh, you left your wallet on the beach. Oh, that's too bad. See you later. No, the lifeguard does all the work and they do it for free. So for us, Jesus has already done all the work in repairing our broken relationship with God. He did it at a great personal cost to himself, but it's free for us. All he asks is that you grab a hold of his awaiting hand and trust in him as your saviour. There's nothing left for you to add. Righteousness by faith alone. Now, at this point, I want to take your minds back to the first century. You're a fly on the wall, listening to a conversation between Paul and his Jewish opposition. So Paul's laid out the argument that righteousness is by faith alone and now it's his opposition's turn to counter. Ready? Here we go. Let's see if this works. Righteousness by faith alone. That's a nice idea, Paul. But that's not really the way that we do things around here. You see, we have Moses and the law and circumcision. That's the way us Jews do things around here. And that's the way that it's been done for a very long time now. And if these Gentiles want to join us, that's the way that they're going to have to do things too. So it is this kind of thinking that Paul addresses in the next section of the letter. Beginning at verse 6, Paul demonstrates that righteousness True faith is, in fact, the way that God has always done things. And not only is righteousness given through faith alone, but also blessing is given through faith alone. And that's my second point, blessed by faith alone. So look with me at verse 6. Abraham believed God, that is to say he had faith, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is a reference back to Genesis chapter 15. And in verse 8, there is another reference back to Genesis, this time to chapter 12. And it's in these chapters that God makes some amazing promises to Abraham. We've discussed God's promises to Abraham here before. We've summarised them in a handy three-letter acronym. LOB, L-O-B. L for land, as God took Abraham from the land where he was and promised to give him the land of Canaan. O, for offspring, that although Abraham and his wife were old and childless, God promised him descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And B, for blessing, that God would make Abraham's name great, and all people on earth would be blessed through him. Now, did you notice that in verse 6, Abraham didn't have to fulfill the commands of the law? to receive the blessings promised to him. In fact, the law hadn't even been given yet. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This belief, it wasn't just head knowledge, you know, learning the facts about God. And no, this belief meant that Abraham took action. He invested all of himself and his family into following God's promises. And so Abraham was blessed through faith in a promise. And it's Paul's argument in verses 7 to 9 that all who believe in the promises of God, whether Jew or Gentile, receive the same blessings that Abraham did. By faith, all can become, as it says in verse 7, a child of Abraham. Now, Children have a share in the inheritance of the parents. Blessing and inheritance are are tightly associated to one another in the Bible. One such example can be found in Genesis chapter 27, where an elderly and blind Isaac, where he's nearing his death. And so he seeks to impart his blessing, that is the inheritance, to his son Esau, only to be deceived by his other son Jacob. Now I make this point about blessing and inheritance Because it's a common and prominent misunderstanding that being blessed means that you have a healthy, wealthy, prosperous life right here and right now. But this is not the blessing that is promised here or anywhere else in the Bible. Here, blessing means to have an inheritance and you're blessed by faith alone. So in verses 15 to 18, Paul provides an illustration to further communicate this point. Now he does this because after all, it's tough to believe in a promise. We want to take people at their word and have them take us at our word too. We all want to be men or women of our word. Thank you, Thank you. Begun blood. Excuse me. Hablat. Not probable. Where's Elizabeth?
0: She's safe, just like I promised. She's all set to marry Norrington, just like she promised. And you get to die for her, just like you promised. So we're all men of our word, really. Except for Elizabeth, who is, in fact, a woman. Shut up. You're next.
1: So whilst Captain Jack, Will and Elizabeth, they're all men, all women of their word in this instance, you don't have to watch too much more of the film to see the deceit and the trickery that's often employed by the pirates. And this resonates with our experience in day-to-day life. We simply cannot just take people at their word. Promises need to be written down and made official to be binding. Think of a person's last will and testament. It's written down, it's signed, and it's sealed away until the time comes when it's put into effect. And once a will is established, it cannot be altered. And this is the exact example that Paul is referring to. In verse 15, in the original Greek, the word which has been translated into covenant in English, well, that more specifically refers to a last will and testament. And in doing this, Paul is highlighting that the promises made in a human will are final and unchangeable. And if this is the case for humans, then how much more will the promises made by God, who never changes his mind, never goes back on his word, also be final and unchangeable? Therefore, the promises that God made to Abraham, made 430 years before the establishment of the law, were not and could not be altered by the establishment of the law. So the way that God has always done things around here is to be a God who is faithful to his promises and to be a God who blesses those who have faith in those promises. That's the way God has done things since the time of Abraham. So if you also have faith in God's promises, you too are blessed. You're blessed by faith alone. But this raises an interesting question. And you can see it there in verse 19. If righteousness and blessing depend on the faith and not on the law, then why was the law given at all? Well, this question is far more genuine than the rhetorical questions we looked at earlier. Having said that, this being a written letter, rather than wait for a response to the question, Paul goes on to answer his own question. And the answer is somewhat confronting. The law was given... Because of sin. We are cursed by the law. And that's my third point. Cursed by the law. Now, Paul himself, he knew the law extremely well. He was a teacher of the law. He had the law memorised. That's evident in this chapter where there are seven separate references back to the Old Testament. And in verses 23 and 24, Paul uses two metaphors to describe why the law was given. Look with me at verse 23. There it says, Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. Held in custody, locked up, they're terms used in the context of a prison. And that's exactly the metaphor here. But the law is a prison guard. Now let's look at verse 24. There it says, So the law was our guardian until Christ came. So the NIV translation, that says guardian. But other translations, such as the NASB, say tutor instead. And that's a more accurate uh, translation of the original intent. The law was a tutor So these two metaphors, a tutor and a prison guard, show that the law had many functions. Like a tutor, the law was there to provide instruction regarding God's will and the way to live in this world. And not only the way to live in this world, but to live eternally. See, in verse 12, Paul quotes from Leviticus, chapter 18, verse 5, which says, Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. Now, live by them in this context means more than just in this lifetime. The inference is that those who are obedient to the law will be blessed with eternal life. So listen to the instructions of the tutor and carry them out and you will have life. But what about if you don't listen to the tutor? If you don't obey obey the instructions... Well, that's where the metaphor of a prison guard comes in. In our modern society, you know, we have law enforcement agencies and that's a good thing. You know, when the law is broken, it requires justice. There should be payment for wrongdoings. And that may include holding someone in custody for the safety and protection of the rest of the community. And the law and those who enforce it are there to do these good and necessary things. And we know that in our legal system, it's a tiered system There are a variety of punishments ranging from minor to very serious which are given out in response to the severity of the offence. But God's legal system, it's not tiered. Break one part of it, you've broken all of it. Paul shows that in verse 10 where he quotes from Deuteronomy 27 verse 26. There it says, curse is anyone who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. To be under God's curse means to be discarded from God's presence. It's the curse of eternal death. So on one hand, the law instructed like a tutor. Through obedience, you could have life through the law. But on the other hand, the law was just. And therefore, punishment for failing to obey the law must be imposed, like a prison guard would. Fail to obey the law and you are cursed by the law. But the law was only ever meant to be a temporary thing. Let's look back at verses 23 to 25 where the metaphors of the tutor and the prison guard came from. Let's look again at the start of verse 23. There it says, before the coming of this faith. And now look at verse 25 where it says, now that, this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. It's clear here that the coming of faith, has changed everything. Faith has changed everything because the purpose of the law has been fulfilled. The curse of the law has been taken away. Let's look back at verses 13 and 14, which are the central verses in this whole chapter. Starting at verse 13, where it says... Jesus took on the curse of the law for us. He paid the price for disobedience to the law, the price that we should have paid. Not only did Christ take on the curse for us, he exchanged our curse for his blessing and life that rightly belonged to him because he was faithfully obedient to the law. He made the great exchange that moves us from cursed by the law to blessed by faith in Christ Jesus. That's why this talk has been titled, Cursed to Blessed. So let's conclude our time by looking at the final three verses of this chapter, verses 26 to 29, which in the outline I've titled, The Big Idea and Summary. Whereas in verse 7, those who have faith were described as children of Abraham, now, in verse 26... Those who have faith are described as children of God. More than being blessed with an inheritance in the promises given to Abraham, now those who have faith are the children of God and have the inheritance of his eternal presence and glory. That's the blessing that's promised to those who are in Christ. That's far better than any of the blessings that this world has to offer. And then you can see there in verse 27 that God is a father to a diverse, multi-ethnic, multi-social class family. And one of the most common criticisms of Christianity in our society is that it's not inclusive. And being inclusive, it's become the great golden characteristic of our time. And in response to these claims, I want to say that Christianity is both exclusive and inclusive. It's exclusive in its message. We've heard that today. Righteousness through faith in Jesus alone. Blessed through faith in Jesus alone. Any other way that you try to be right with God, such as the law, and you're cursed. Five times in these final three verses of this chapter, it says, in Christ. Christ is the only way. I'll admit, that's an exclusive message. But whilst it's an exclusive message, it's inclusive in its availability. Verse 27 says, Neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The offer of the great exchange to move from cursed to blessed It's available to anyone, of any gender, of any cultural background, of any social status. It's inclusive. It's exclusive in content, but it's inclusive in availability. So Christ's righteousness and blessing are available to anyone, of any gender, of any cultural background, of any social status... Well, this has big social implications for us. We are all equally children of God. And we must treat one another as such. And it's so tempting, and truth be told, it's deeply ingrained into us in our society to treat other people based on their appearance, maybe their gender or their skin colour, their wealth or their lack thereof, maybe what they've done in the past. But we've been challenged during this series in Galatians Think that God's promises are not just available to us individually, they're available to everyone, regardless of their gender, race, social status, or past actions. We clearly see here that the Bible is saying that we see one another as sisters and brothers in Christ, and so to treat one another accordingly. The only defining mark of God's family, the only defining characteristic. Are those who are in Christ. That's what our church family must strive to be. We are all equal joint heirs in the inheritance which our Father promises us. So, what about how how do we treat people who aren't who haven't yet placed their faith in Jesus? Well, they're a sister or a brother too. They just haven't been adopted into the family yet. So let me finish by asking you a couple of rhetorical questions. Now, they're only rhetorical because I don't want you shouting out your answers. But I do want you to consider these questions and answer them earnestly for yourself. First question, do you trust that you are a righteous and blessed child of God through faith and faith alone? And not just having a knowledge of these facts in your head, But do you trust in that promise with all of your being? Faith in Jesus, great exchange for for you. It's the only way to be righteous and blessed. It's exclusive, but it's inclusive, available to you if you take a hold of it. And the second question, as you look around, the people you see, do you see them as your sisters? and your brothers in Christ? And not just those who are similar to you, but also those who are totally different from you in every other way, except that you are both in Christ. Are we truly a church family welcoming to all people, viewing one another as joint heirs in the the inheritance which our Father promises us? My prayer is that we would see one another in this way. And in doing so, truly become a Jesus-shaped community, following the example of the one who became a curse for us so that we might become blessed. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise that we can call upon you as our Father. Thank you for Jesus, who became the curse for us so that by faith in him we may be blessed. Thank you that you are faithful to your promises and as your children, we have the blessing of an eternal inheritance awaiting us. We ask that the Holy Spirit help us become a Jesus-shaped community, loving one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.